Hello, and welcome to Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S. Asia Institute's summer podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with firsthand knowledge of Asia. In this episode, we hear from John Zanni, Chief Executive Officer at Acronis SCS, an independent American company dedicated to providing secure backup, disaster recovery, and cyber protection for the U.S. public sector. Acronis SES was formed by the spin-off of Acronis's U.S. public sector business, serving the federal government, federal systems integrators, state and local governments, education, and nonprofit organizations. In these clips, we speak to John about cyber capacity building in ASEAN, specifically discussing ASEAN's need for cyber protection and Singapore's leadership in cyber skills. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. We start this episode with John introducing his work at Acronis. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Uh, yes, well, first, thank you for having me here. I appreciate uh, this opportunity. Acronis and Acronis SES is a cyber protection company. We provide software that enables edge devices to be secure and protect their data and keep your digital lives safe. Jumping straight into our topic of cyber capacity today, I think when many people hear the term cyber capacity, they don't really have a concrete idea of what it actually entails. So could you give us a brief introduction to cyber capacity and why this topic is becoming increasingly important in our world today? Yes. There are a number of definitions you can find on the internet about cyber capacity, but really it is about taking a holistic approach around making sure that your digital lives are safe and secure and that you can operate in a context where you feel that you won't be personally attacked or lose your data or used it against you. The cyber capacity really revolves around some policy and strategy and how you develop that, how you have a, a culture of being secure, for example, using dual authentication, not clicking on those unknown attachments in your email, Mm -hmm. uh, having a plan to train and educate people and have them understand why there's some extra effort you have to put in place to log in and you can't keep it just open. On the government side, that means a set of legal and regulatory frameworks that allow companies to be innovative, but at the same time protect consumers, Mm -hmm. and then developing standards, both uh, locally and internationally, so that countries can all interact together in a way that's trusted and safe. Hmm. So what are some of the factors driving cyber capacity development right now? Well, so what's happened is quite interesting. Uh, I've been in tech since 94 for a while, and what we've seen is that this wave of innovation has really been driven by consumers and businesses and is moving much faster than regulations have been able to keep up. So some examples of a lot of uh, people, including myself, use banking apps to transfer cash from companies that are not really well known, right? Right. Uh, There is another example is I hardly go to the supermarket anymore. I just go online, uh, choose products, and two hours later it's in, in my home. So I'm quite dependent on the digital capabilities of the world today. And so are many of us. But that innovation happens so fast that it's left some openings for bad actors to come in and take advantage of those openings to use that information to get ransom from us Mm -hmm. or make our life miserable or delete our data. And so that's why there has been a drive to really develop the appropriate cyber capacity so we can continue to enjoy this digital side of our lives and even improve over time without a fear of it actually negatively impacting us. Mm -hmm. And on a related note, 
Are there any factors limiting cyber capacity development in Singapore and in ASEAN in general? So the limitations are that the technology is developing so fast and the capabilities are developing so fast that it's just hard to keep up with the regulations and the policies, whether it's about privacy, like some of the discussions around social networks like Facebook, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, about tracking whether that cash app you use is not taking that data and using it nefariously. And so being able to put in the right rules and regulations without stifling that innovation just will take time. You mentioned earlier how a lot of this growth is driven by consumers and businesses. Cronus was founded in Singapore in 2003, and over the past decade, we've seen massive growth in Southeast Asia and Singapore, not just in cyber capacity, but in all sectors and all markets. Considering this massive expansion, how has Acronis adapted to the changes in technology and the growth of markets in Asia? So uh, Acronis is the technology-driven company. When you think it started its roots as a backup and recovery software company, the value proposition of backup and recovery is very simple. Take a copy of your data, put it somewhere else, and if you need it uh, to recover it, you recover it. The technology behind it uh, is quite complex. And as data is becoming more and more decentralized, as there are more and more IoT devices or independent devices, the ability to secure that data and your digital lives becomes more and more critical. At Acronis, we focus you know, on the security aspect, which includes anti-ransomware, on the digital authentication component, managing who sees your data, and then, of course, backup and recovery as well. To be able to be leading edge, you need to partner with universities mm-hmm. and create intellectual property that is the, the latest uh, and greatest. Great. And we have uh, relationships with NUS, which have produced some technology that eventually shows up in the products, and we do partner with government as well. And speaking about Singapore more specifically, how does the city-state's cyber capacity or psycho capabilities compare to other ASEAN countries? Well, Singapore is definitely the leader. And I was looking online, and according to the Cybersecurity Index, Singapore is first in, in the top 10 in the world and definitely the number one Asian country. Malaysia is the next one. So they're setting the standard and the bar for the other ASEAN countries which is uh, great news. Mm -hmm. Also, remember, Singapore is a hub, right? There's a lot of banking there. They have, for example, they have $500 million in annual trade just with the state of Arizona. So it's important for them to show this leadership, and they've really taken up that mantle to do so. And do you believe Singapore's growth in cyber capacity relies on the cyber capacity and security of its neighboring states? Or There's an interdependence, of course. Right. And over time, all countries will need to have a joint standard around cyber capacity. Uh, but they're not dependent on it in the security of their own country. Mm-hmm. Their rules and regulations and policies they're putting in place, their focus on smart nation, is allowing them to really set a standard that first will secure that country, Mm -hmm. as well as those that are are partnering with them, like the United States and Canada, Mm -hmm. and set an example of what the other countries need to do. But it's definitely not a blocker. Mm -hmm. But over time, if those other countries want to really fully benefit from Singapore, then they're going to have to have some level of cyber capacity, or otherwise it'll just be very difficult. Mm -hmm. 
And jumping off your point about establishing a joint standard, what are some of the challenges in developing international norms in regards to cybersecurity? I would look at the latest similar process, which was around privacy and and the European Union's GDPR effort. So first, they had to get uh, all these nations uh, or countries within European Union to agree to GDPR. That was quite difficult. But they did get a standard, and now it's being implemented. There are some uh, companies that have been fined yeah. because of mistakes they've made, mm-hmm. and but it is developing. The United States is following suit. They have different policies. that They don't have one that's federally or global yet, so different states are doing different things, but that will develop over time. The same will happen with cyber capacity and cybersecurity. Uh, It's being led today by some countries like the United States uh, and Singapore and Canada, and others will follow suit and then to be able for us to freely travel and feel safe, those all have to be in place. So what are the current initiatives in building cyber skills in Singapore, but also in ASEAN in general? So workforce development is, is super important. It has to be a collaborative effort between government, between industry, between university, because this is a long-term effort. What does that mean? So first, universities have to have the curriculum and the, the people developing that expertise, because there's a labor shortage in cybersecurity skills around the world today, whether you're the DOD of the U.S. government or, or a medium-sized business like a Cronus SES, it's hard to find people. Mm-hmm. What we're doing, I can give you as an example, is we're working with universities in Singapore and in Arizona uh, to build those curriculums and help get more people trained. Then uh, we offer internship programs as well so that they can have real-life experiences. And then my employees all have both internal and external training uh, throughout their career to make sure they stay up to date. So between those three entities, the labor pool will grow. And that's why the cybersecurity agreement between Singapore, Canada, and the United States is so exciting because that's one of the core tenants is building out the labor force to have those skill sets. So building upon the cybersecurity agreement between Singapore, the U.S., and Canada, what prompted the initiative and why these three countries specifically? So I I can talk to what I know. Some of it is speculation. (laughs) So what's prompting it is, of course, there are more and more attacks and loss of data that's costing real money, like the $18.1 million to the city of Baltimore or the loss of personal data in Singapore, I think, about two years ago. So that's what's prompting it. It's fairly clear why these, well, I suspect that Singapore and the United States and Canada have had a a beneficial long-term relationship. And so there's already a trust level there. And because Singapore is really a hub to Asia, it, it seemed to be the reasonable place to start. I'm sure there are similar initiatives in other parts of the world, but today we're focused on that one, uh, and I think this is a good start. And their focus on training, uh, workforce development, and then sharing where there are attacks happening so that they all can react at the same time. Because unfortunately, the bad actors have their own alliances. That is meaning that we're seeing attacks from more and more different countries now that we need to be prepared for. Yeah, I was just wondering because, like, for example, in Asia, we, we see Hong Kong as another very successful hub for a lot of businesses and a lot of markets. I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but whether that's something that, like, we see in Hong Kong, too, or just or just because Singapore has such, like, such high-level universities that can really drive this um, technological... Well, Singapore has always been known for its neutrality and independence, right? Yeah. Uh, it's been nicknamed uh, Switzerland of <laughs> Asia, which I don't know whether you like that or not. <laughs> uh, but it's a good metaphor, at least, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I 
I, I think you're very different than Switzerland. I've been to Singapore <clears throat> many, many times. Beautiful country, by the way. But because of that neutrality and independence, right, uh, it leads to being able to do work that might be more difficult in Hong Kong. Uh, as we know, there's still some tension between Hong Kong and China, and as we've seen some of the protests, but you don't see any of that in Singapore. And so Singapore doesn't have those distractions that really allow you to focus on the, the real problem, which is developing that cyber capacity so we can make sure our digital lives are safe and secure. So how has the expansion of investment in markets in the ASEAN region impacted the use of technology in ASEAN markets and the need for cyber protection? So what's really interesting in the ASEAN markets is uh, the proliferation of endpoint or edge devices. So where you take a country like the United States, where technology and the tech sector really started with a lot of big servers and people with their laptops and desktops, Asia leapfrogged that and really went to a world where they had ubiquitous bandwidth. I think in Singapore, everyone has access to at least a gigabit of, of bandwidth uh, for very, very low cost, relatively speaking. But that decentralization of endpoint devices or edge devices also led to vulnerabilities. And that's why it's super important to be protected on those devices so that none of them become entry points to attack. So it seems like there is kind of a tension between the increasing convenience of these devices and, you know, whether I'm actually cyber safe. Absolutely. (laughs) Like, uh, I'll I'll give you our example. We've implemented dual-factor authentication on all the applications we use. And and like a modern company, we use a number of cloud services like Office 365 or ADP in the U.S. for payroll processing. Not all of these systems actually had dual-factor authentication, which means we had to use other intermediaries or systems to really be cyber secure. And then on top of that, I had to educate my own employees on why now when you logged in, you also had to look at a number on your phone and authorize it and and really educate people. Mm -hmm. And we're in that industry, Mm -hmm. let alone most of the world who's not in that industry. Now, what I find interesting is if I told you, uh, you know what, don't carry keys anymore, just leave your door or your house unlocked, don't worry about it. Actually, Singapore is probably pretty safe for that, (laughs) (coughs) but uh, most of the world, not so much, and we do carry keys, right? Right. Or now it's sometimes a keypad and lock our doors, and that's an inconvenience, right? Mm -hmm. It takes you a few extra seconds to get into your house, but you do it. Uh, We have to build that culture and that habit within the way we access our digital data and share it. So in the United States, I feel like, at least for college students, we get a lot of information about, like, we can easily access information on how, like, we can keep our data safe. So in other countries who have increased their digital presences and, like, um, have become increasingly reliant on on technology but maybe not have that access to that knowledge about how to protect that data, what are some initiatives that are just going on around the world to... So, educate people on how to so there, there's a, a lot more education initiatives and, and the media is now picking up on this so you're seeing more and more stories every day about ransomware attacks showing people how vulnerable their data is and how important it is to be protected I saw an article just a few days ago about K-12 through so not even high school right elementary school being attacked and vulnerable because they had older systems and they weren't uh, protected and so the more it's a little bit of a fear story but the more people understand that they're really vulnerable, the more they'll think about how to be protected. Or what happened with Cambridge Analytica, where you had a collection of anonymous data that once you brought it all together, wasn't so anonymous. Yeah. Even my iPhone, right? 
every once in a while I'll see my battery dies much faster than it should, and it's usually because there's some app that I'm not aware of that's taking data and sending it back and forth. Do I have control over what that data is? Uh, not so much. So it's, it's a lot, a lot of education. And then uh, what's super important is that the government comes in and starts putting in a framework that still allows innovation, uh, but really allows us to control our digital lives, which isn't happening today. So what are the trends or key issues in the development of cybersecurity that our listeners should keep an eye out for? So there are a few things that your listeners should watch out. First, there is definitely a convergence of cybersecurity and data protection. The two used to be separate, separate applications, separate groups, separate thinking, but that's it's like buying insurance to go visit your doctor but not have that same insurance cover your hospital visit. You really need to have a system that is preventative, antivirus anti-spam, anti-malware, anti-ransomware, but also allows you to know when some somebody's touched your data, so digital authentication. And then, of course, the ability to recover very quickly when something does happen, whether you got attacked or you lost your data, uh, and that's backup and recovery. So you're going to see that convergence and tools like the ones provided by Acronis and Acronis SCS to make it really easy for yourself to be protected. And then the other one they have to watch out is there is a sense of urgency and so as bad actors are noticing vulnerabilities then they're increasing their attacks in these pockets of vulnerabilities like what happened to state and local government and so it's important that even if you have a long-term plan to be protected that you have some interim solution that really makes sure that you're not vulnerable while you're getting protected and staying up to date. One of the biggest mistakes I see is uh, some of the solutions that are being proposed by certain regulatory bodies or individuals is, well, just make sure everybody uses the latest technology. Well, that's a great concept, but uh, I have a smart TV. It's a really nice one. I bought it a year ago. I'm not, there aren't better ones now, more secure and more modern ones. I'm not going to update my TV. It was expensive. It's good for a few more years. Uh, But I do still need to have that uh, be protected. Uh, And so you need to have a layer of protection not only around the most current devices, but devices that have been around for a few years so that you stay protected. And going forward with these trends in development of cybersecurity, do we see that Singapore continues to be at the forefront of this innovation? Do we also see other countries catching up and also working to build their cyber, their own cyber capacities? So I am 100% persuaded that Singapore will continue to be a leader, not only in Asia, but in the rest of the world, because of their government stance on the importance of cybersecurity and cyber protection and what they're doing around smart cities. There's no doubt in my mind, which is why, even though Acronis SES is an American company with U.S. citizens, we license a lot of that inf- innovation from Singapore and then uh, improve upon that specifically for the U.S. government. Other countries will come in to the foray, but I hope that the agreement between Singapore, U.S., and Canada is a model that they will use so they're not competing for innovation but actually sharing and so that the rate of innovation increases much, much faster. I've always been one who believes in collaboration versus isolation because then we all benefit. And there's always plenty of innovation and money and, and, and whatever your goals are to, to go around and, and have everybody be successful and happy. 
Okay, well, just to end on a fun note, as our uh, cybersecurity expert, what would be your top tip for our listeners in their daily life to stay cyber safe? Uh, the top tip is change your password. Because I think. <laughs> Which I uh, do. <laughs> yeah, uh, most of uh, us uh, like to choose names and numbers we remember. Right. So you use it on one site. There might be a consumer site that gets hacked, and that same password is used for your business machine or your banking, and now they have access to all your banking systems. So that would be uh, my one tip, and then just uh, keep up to date on what's going on. Okay, all right. This has been really great. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at US Asia Institute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.